Welcome to Rethinking Possible. I'm Courtney Martin. And I'm Guhe Moara. On this podcast, you'll hear stories about how social innovators are tackling the world's biggest problems and rethinking what's possible to build a better future. Guhe and I have conversations with people who are dealing with problems that are not just big, but also complex. Today's episode is with a guest who's taking on a problem about as big and complex as it gets. I'm talking to Garrett Bucks, who runs an organization called Barn Raisers, which does anti-racist work for, wait for it, Guhey, white people. All right. So, (laughs) Courtney, I'm going to be honest and say that I secretly rolled my eyes a little bit just now. I think we've done a really good job of trying to pass the mic on to folks whose stories and work might not get featured as much. And so to have a cisgendered white man who we're already kind of primed to see as a savior to the many problems we're facing just because of the body and the package he comes in, well, I'm skeptical about this. But, Courtney, I am curious about his work. What's the social innovation here? And say more about his organization, Barn Raisers. Okay, so Barn Raisers coaches and trains white people to take, quote-unquote, real action. They organize their friends, neighbors, colleagues for racial equity. So I hear your cynicism, Guhe, completely. I was cynical, too. But I think this is a really countercultural effort in so many ways. As barn raisers say, they're nobody's saviors. So they're committed to doing their part. It's about taking responsibility for a better, more just world instead of just talking about your guilt in another book club, says the author whose you know, book is discussed in book clubs. But seriously, <laughs> so, so practically speaking, at least for now, this means a bunch of white people from all over the country get on Zoom calls and they talk about the ways they're showing up in their own communities and how they can know and do better. So they do things like educating white parents about school segregation, asking their congregations to step up and fight for police abolition. They get their neighbors to not fight against but actually advocate for public housing. Now, I first discovered Garrett through his writing on Substack. He's an incredible writer. Um, And I read something he wrote at the beginning of the pandemic about racial justice. And I was just like, who the heck is this white guy from Montana living in Milwaukee writing with such heartfelt sophistication about race? And that led me to get to know him a bit. I took his Barn Raisers organizing training and, and kind of on and on from there. So let's jump into it. I'm hearing your skepticism. Let's just give it a listen and see how you feel afterwards. Without further ado, here is my interview with Garrett Bucks, co-founder and leader of Barn Raisers. I thought we would start with a moment where your work is about whiteness. It's about anti-racism. It's about a more moral whiteness in this country, developing one, creating one. And I thought we might start with a moment where whiteness was profoundly visible in recent months, which is the insurrection of the Capitol. Do you remember sort of where you were and what you were doing when you first saw that go down and what kind of went was going through your head and heart? Oh, heck yeah, I remember. It was, it was a weird day, right? <laughs> it was not a work day. Uh, I was with my kids all day. But it was surreal, right, to try to live the day with my kids, focus on them, delight in them, also talk about what was going on with them, which we can talk about in a second. And then as soon as I could transition away for a few minutes, have a flood of everything, right? A flood of anger and a flood of fear. 
the particularly numbing pain that comes when you saw this coming, you were in fact ready for it, and yet you're still just gobsmacked by it when it hit. Did you see it coming? I did. I was really worried about it. Courtney, you know, both both you and I are, are both writers and folks who process both things that are happening in our personal life and things that are happening in the world, I presume both of us best through writing. And I remember waking up that morning and I was thinking, huh, I feel like it's going to go bad. Uh, and I'm worried that I'm not going to have a time and space to write about it and process it. And, you know, that's the kind of feeling that you hope you're wrong. Although I guess part of your work is knowing if groups of white people to get together, it's a good bet bad things might happen. Like you're pretty sober about about what's going on in the country and and the like organized nature of what's happening right now in terms of the sort of white supremacist backlash, right? It's a new muscle for those of us who are white, but you know, black and brown and indigenous communities across this country have gotten pretty darn good at expecting the least from us as white people, um, and unfortunately often being proven very, very right. So I was not surprised, but then I had this moment, you know, because I mentioned earlier that I was with my my kids all day, and I've got a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and, you know, a tried to talk to both of them about what was going on. And a four-year-old's interesting because a four-year-old processes everything as equally miraculous or equally mundane. And so an attack on the Capitol could be an interesting thing for her, uh, but it could be potentially no more interesting than the fact that the male person came to the front door that day, right? right? So I don't remember much <laughs> of Ida's reaction. But my, my seven-year-old, you know, we've talked a lot uh, about not just, you know, Trump and the movement behind Trumpism, but also about America's reckoning with law enforcement and you know horrific deaths of black folks at the hand of law enforcement. And so he's processed a lot of this. And what was fascinating in talking to him about it, that I think is going to be the most visceral haunting memory of that day for me, uh, is, you know, when I explained to him what was happening and why he was not nonchalant, but himself as a seven-year-old, so completely unshocked that he understood that this was something that people, and in particular white people in this country, are capable of. And he has a context for that that is rooted in the historical context of racism and white supremacy. But while I'm glad in a lot of ways that he's able to process the world at that level right now, that is also heartbreaking to already know that incidents such as this have hit the level of mundane for a seven-year-old. So that's, that's what I'm left with from that day, if I'm honest with you. Can you tell us, do you remember what you said to him about what was happening and why? Yeah, let's, let's see how well I can remember. You know, we talked a lot about Trump, right? And we had talked about, you know, both why his mother and I were particularly disappointed in how he ran the country, which, of course, is not a hard thing to explain to a seven-year-old or a four-year-old because you have a president basically doing the opposite of every piece of good kindergarten-level advice on how to be a good human being. But, you know, when we had layered on to that, when the natural questions had risen in the past on, so why? Why would people elect a mean guy as president? We had layered on connecting to a history of saying that, you know, America was founded with two big holes in its heart, 
that America was founded with the idea that it was going to be okay to enslave black folks, and it was going to be okay to kill and take the land of indigenous folks. And when you start with those two holes in your heart as a country, it takes hundreds upon hundreds of years of activism and learning and relearning and rediscovery to have a whole heart again. And that hits all Americans who are black, brown, and indigenous, and, and white in different ways. But for white people in particular, it means that we're really, really bad, and we struggle a whole lot at giving up uh, what we're used to, at giving up stories of what this country was or is that are really important to us, on giving up our, posi our particular positions, giving up institutions and access to them that we feel implicitly, if not explicitly, entitled to, and giving up the myth that we get to do this on our own. And that plays out how hard that is for us to live differently in a pluralistic, beloved community with other folks, lives out for all of us white people in a lot of different ways. And we're all learning how to do it differently. And one of the ways I didn't use the term manifest, but one of the ways that manifests itself, that, that you see that coming out, is with a whole bunch of white folks who are so scared at a change to their world that they are willing to believe anybody who tells them that they don't actually have to change. And if those folks tell them that consistently enough, and tell them that they're the only ones that care about them. They're capable of doing some of the worst things possible. Hmm. That's so, it's so beautifully put. I'm, I'm definitely going to borrow some of that language with my own children, as I'm sure will many of our listeners. And, you know, we're on this podcast called Solvers. Now I'm thinking, is this what you're solving for, the two holes in the heart of America, the founding of America? Or do you think of it as something different? What are you solving for? Yeah, I... Uh, I think that's it. You know, when you said that, I paused for a second. And the reason why is because, of course, those two holes have, have grown into many, many holes. Uh, that although our original sins as a country are, were our relationships to black folks and our relationships to indigenous folks, once you learn that doctrine of exclusion, and especially when you pair it with its twin doctrine of patriarchy and of a hierarchy between men and women, then you then get really, really good at doctrines and of patterns of exclusion. So my only pause, as you said that, was that unfortunately we got even more holes in our hearts now that aren't mended. Holes in terms of immigrant communities, in terms of our ability to truly be a welcoming place for LGBTQ communities, in, and our reckoning with our most historical injustices. And, you know, this podcast is called Solvers, and I want to make something very clear that... I don't think it's white folks' job to solve that. I think that it's white folks' job to repair our particular relationship to it. Because if we built this country with a few different hands tied behind our back because it was just white folks basically saying, we're going to do this for ourselves and do to everyone else whatever we want to, building a better world is going to disproportionately be built by all of us. And the most empowering and inspiring leadership is going to come from those communities that have been robbed of societal opportunities to express their genius, their creativity, and their leadership. But 
if that's going to happen, white people are going to have to learn a new way of being in community. And we're going to have to learn a new variety of joy that's not about our own individual journeys through this country, but it's about our learning one step at a time how to be in collective journey with one another. And that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in what are white people's piece of building the beloved community? So barn raisers is your strategy for answering that question, right? Is to explore it through organizing white people, which for a lot of folks alone is sort of a frightening concept given our history. Organizing white people, we think of organizing white people and we think of, you know, the KKK and white supremacy and these terrorist organizations. But you are organizing white people in a very different way. Can you talk about what Barn Raisers is and why it's called that? Yeah, well, it's probably good that we're living in an era where I can't be on a bus or an airplane in the kind of place where you would just make small talk with a stranger on what do you do, (laughs) right? Because you're right. When I say, when I said back in the day, I'm trying to figure out a way how to organize white people, uh, I get a lot of looks, right? (laughs) Our track record record of white people getting in a room together and talking about their common identity as white people, I want to make very clear, is not a good one. Now, even if you get behind that, be like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not talking about the nasty type of organizing white people. Even after that, the, the, the term organizing, which is one, as you know, I love and I, I feel just has such power and complexity and creativity in it, is also, uh, even if folks can get behind, okay, oh, you're organizing folks for good, it's a tricky term for folks to get behind because we hear organizing and we probably have an archetype of a certain type of activist and a certain type of leader that some folks identify with, but the vast majority of folks don't. Well, even more, don't you think most people, I don't know about most people, but a lot of Americans have no idea what organizing even is. I I have to say myself included, which I'm curious about your upbringing because as a white middle-class person in Colorado Springs, Colorado, I never heard of organizing till I went to college at New York City. Did you grow up knowing about organizing at all? This is what's fascinating, right? I, I love that you said that because I did not hear that word. But do you know what I experienced growing up was a living room almost always full of adults and on various evenings because there was some sort of community need that my parents were involved in. And that might have been through our church. That might have been through an immediate neighborhood association. That might have been working on a political campaign. That might have been putting together some sort of community event. Uh, And I wouldn't have named that as organizing, but I had these incredible examples in my immediate life of watching my parents ask a question, and we moved around a fair bit growing up, ask a question wherever we were of what does it look like to be useful here? But there's a story behind barn raisers, right? And I I often say when folks ask me, what's your name about? That I say, your first guess is probably actually right. You know, we hear barn raising, we're probably thinking, oh, are you talking about actually the days that like rural communities would get together and they would raise a barn? You know, that they'd get together and do some sort of community work project. And that is absolutely what I'm hearkening to. What I'm hearkening to is something that I do believe is indigenous in all of our souls and hearts, which is this understanding that when you identify yourself as part of a community, that the natural thing you do is identify what is the most immediate pressing needs that community has, and you step up together to solve them, step up together to figure it out. So by naming this organization and the work I do, Barn Raisers, what I'm hoping to spark for folks is a few things. First is the idea that whether we like it or not, 
through the accident of thousands of years of constructed history of making us a thing, white people are a community. And the second step, which you can probably infer from everything else I'm saying, is that there's nothing more pressing, there's nothing more damaging, there is no more destabilizing force in our world than our relationship to white supremacy. This is what has knocked our barn down, and so this this is why we are called to be a community to one another to raise it back up. I'm thinking about the groups that were in my living room when you said, like, I didn't, I'd never heard the word organizing, but then I thought there were always these groups in my living room asking, how can we be useful in this community? I had the same experience. My mom is, you know, was sort of the center of our community organizing various things, as I'm sure you'd be shocked to hear. And she called it, I believe, volunteering. And it was also profoundly white. Um, We lived in a vastly, vast majority white neighborhood. My parents' social circle was, I believe, almost entirely white. And so I guess it's leading me to ask and wonder, based on what you said about your own upbringing, what is the difference between volunteering and organizing? And is it possible to organize white people within deeply segregated communities to make anti-racist change? Nine times out of ten, neighbors getting together and trying to do something together is much preferable um, towards folks just looking out for themselves. So with that said, what makes it different when it's organizing? When it's organizing, it's not just we're trying to do something nice either for the community as a whole or definitely not just for other people, right? It's not saying we're trying to, we're trying to do some sort of charity work. But it's this idea that we have, that there is a transformation that's going to be necessary in our little pocket of the world. Something different needs to happen that starts with us. And when I think about what organizing white people is all about, it is about white people getting together and saying, we are the problem. We are also folks who aspire towards real goodness. And we've got a lot of strengths. And what we want to do is call each other into the opportunity to live into our strengths and values more fully uh, and to try to get past some of the things that have led us to live in hypocrisy uh, with those strengths and values. I feel like that we are the problem thing is so important. I think the vast majority of white people organizing or volunteering together is premised on the idea we are the solution. We have money, we have ideas about how other people should be like parenting or educating or, you know, working or, you know, that like we are the ones with the solution to offer others. So that's sort of the charity model. And maybe mm-hmm. we are the problem and can be the solution is at the heart of the kind of organizing you're trying to do. Does that sound right? It's such a powerful summary. That's a powerful summary. Absolutely. Which is also very powerful because it's in conversation. I also interviewed Rodney Foxworth, who's a leader that if you aren't hip to, you would love. And we were talking about the way in which W.E.B. Du Bois said, what does it feel like to be a problem? And that his work is around trying to say to black folks, indigenous folks, brown folks, what does it feel like to be a solution? Like you are the solution to your own town's your own community's needs. You just need the resources, like literally the financial resources to make it happen. So it feels very powerful to be flipping the script both ways, you know, that we're like getting real about who's the problem and who's the solution and that we can all be the solution if we work hard enough on our inner internal work and really take action. 
that inspired two separate thoughts. You know, the first is, uh, I'm, I, I, you're right, I am so inspired by that, that line of thinking and that line of work. And, you know, it feels like if we look at the world of nonprofits or philanthropy or government do-gooding or anything like that, it feels like, you know, we're just starting right now, you know, woefully late, to, to start making one half of that turn, right? And it's a positive first step, but nobody is talking about the other side of that, which is, it's not just saying that communities of color are not the problem. Communities of color are not where the deficits are. It's also being willing to admit that if an unjust system has been created and maintained, that means that problem did come from somewhere. And for white folks, the call is coming inside the house. And you're darn right. We are still, even folks who think about their entire life, think about social change. When I talk to folks who are saying, I want to work in white communities, I want to work in your community, that is destabilizing for folks. No one thinks that, oh, you know, the work needs to happen here. I go to somebody else's community to go do good work. And no one wants to admit that that's where our mindset has been, but 100% has been. And so the second part that I do want to get to is I do want white folks to be able to sit in a room with one another and say, darn it, yeah, not just have we historically been part of creating this, but there's a set of actions and mindset changes that we're still not willing to take that are causing friction and keeping our community from being what it needs to be. But I also believe in the potential of white folks, which again is a funny thing to say. Uh, but I would not be doing this work if I did not believe so deeply that this is not inevitable. I believe we're better than this. And to go back to the, you know, the story with, with my, my kids on January 6th, that was my big aha in that day. And hopefully is what they see and how I'm trying to live my life and how their mom's trying to live her life. But, you know, I'm glad that my kids are getting a set of lessons that the world is not as it needs to be. But I think it is equally important for them to be inspired by the fact that they're going to grow up, not just inspired by relationships with black, brown, indigenous folks who inspire them. I have no fear that that's going to happen. But I also want them, their life to be filled with examples of white people who are breaking that pattern. And yeah, I want them to see me doing that. And that's a large part of what, why I do the work I do. I want them to be just flooded with examples of white people, not just reckoning with the pain we've caused, but stepping into a more beautiful way of being human. I mean, I think so much of this work is generational. And when I think about, you know, the 80s, the time of when you and I came of age in the US, there was sort of a dominant, for those who wanted to be not racist white people, there was a dominant idea of sort of a colorblind ideology. We don't see race, we treat everyone the same, which obviously erased the two holes in the heart that you spoke to earlier. And then as we were becoming kind of teenagers and college students, I feel like there became a moment of sort of voicing pain, whether it was through music or through actual, you know, the birth of ethnic studies and, you know, all of these important forces that said, no, there is pain here, we have to acknowledge it. But I feel like, you know, our generation was left with this vacuum of white moral imagination. We, you know, we had no stories of what does it look like for white people to stand up? We could quote Martin Luther King all day, but 
you know, I certainly have been in this process of sort of uncovering from history these people like Anne Braden, who I know is a huge uh, sort of North Star for you, an incredible woman from Louisville or others. And so I love that vision of like, how do we raise white kids so that they don't have that vacuum of what uh, an, at least an attempt at a white moral life looks like, right? What you just said about our, our political imagination that you and I grew up with. And I think about that so much. The best gift of my life now, you know, as somebody, you know, right dab smack in middle age, is that I'm realizing as I simultaneously look towards history and when I look at what I'm learning from younger activists right now, I am just so grateful because I feel that there's been more awakening of that imagination for me just in the last year than has been true at any point in my life. And I'm learning something different from both directions. What I'm learning as I look to the past is, as you just noted with Ann Braden or with folks like Will Campbell, like there is like, this incredible lineage at every point in American history of white people who were critical, I would say prophetic voices against white supremacy and who did the hard, thankless work of organizing each other. And that did actually make a difference. Those folks were disproportionately, incredibly, incredibly stalwart and appreciated friends, allies, and advocates to the black, brown, indigenous folks who have shaped our best justice moments in this country. There's no wheel to reinvent here. There is a legacy for myself and for thousands of others of white people to step into now. And then when I look at folks who are younger than me, I don't know if you, I'd love to hear if you have this experience too. What it just erupts in me is this permission to ask bigger questions. What's the nature of prisons? What's the nature of police? Can we radically rethink how we take care of each other as a society? And I think, I didn't even know I was allowed to ask those questions. And when I put those two together, that's, I'm just filled with gratitude, right? And so thinking about how to make it for our kids, right, that they, they don't wait until they're 40 to get gifted and, and, and get welcomed into that. And, you know, you probably hear like a sense of joy in my voice here right now. And I, I, I want to pull that out because I bet your listeners are, are hearing this and thinking, oh, God, this guy's talking about getting white people together to talk about the problems that we cause and how uh, the pain we're a part of. And this feels like just a funereal struggle session, that this is going to be a lot of woke people just sitting around congratulating each other on how badly they can feel. And... The work I do is quite the opposite. Getting groups together, it feels like such a relief and it feels like such a joy. It's challenging to imagine like, oh, does this mean I actually have to talk to my neighbors about potentially like a reparations policy in our neighborhood or our city? Does this mean that I have to think differently about where I send my kids to school? Those are hard questions, but there's so much joy because they're, they're coming to another person and saying, hey, 
would you like to actually be the kind of person that we say we want to be? Uh, and would you want to do it together? And I've just been filled with joy these past couple of years, which is a weird thing to say about these past couple of years, that is not by any means a joy that ignores the immense pain and suffering and, and the ways that those holes in our hearts still reveal themselves again and again and again, but that it feels like I'm not helpless and I'm not alone and that I... I am no hero in this, but I, I, I get to discover my role in building something. And damn, that's felt fun. Will you walk us a little bit through sort of the arc of engagement at Barn Raisers? Like what do white folks get when they show up and where do you hope they land? So there's a few different ways to engage with me. Uh, there are folks who are part of a community project. They've already identified, we want to do something different. You know, we're a group of clergy in this city that's trying to think differently about how our congregations show up for justice. Or, you know, our organization is going through a wild transformation and we would like to be less tied to white supremacy as we do so. So sometimes I work with existing organizations and sometimes I have folks just come to me one by one and join a cohort with other strangers from across the country saying, I'd like to learn. This space is going to be an, a judgment-free space where what we talk about are a few things. The first is why we're actually scared of working with one another as white people. Why it feels easier when we start learning about white supremacy, when we learn and we start wrestling with the pain that we feel for our role in it, you know, why that self-righteousness and separation from, from other white people happens and why it's going to keep on happening. So that's the first interesting question I want people to wrestle with. Then after we wrestle with that and hopefully gain at least a desire to try to transcend that separation and to say, damn it, whether we like it or not, we white people are a community and we need to start treating each other with it. Then the question that I have folks ask is, how do you identify a specific community need to take on? How do you then go through a stage of listening and trying to build relationships, even if those are halting, even if those are sometimes awkward, etc., with black, brown, indigenous activists in your community so that you learn to ask the question, not what is the problem, what do we solve it, but what is the change that the most visionary thinkers of our time are trying to make right now? And when they have the space to admit, in what way are white folks standing in the way of that change? What would it look like for white folks to move over? Um, what are they asking for? And there's all sorts of answers depending on the issue. Sometimes they are going to ask you to fundraise for them. Sometimes they might have a specific political campaign. They're trying to oust you know, this person from the state legislature. They're trying to get this referendum passed, etc. Other times it may be about transforming organizations saying, this organization with its white board and its white leadership team needs to think dramatically differently about its composition. Other times it's going to be about individual behavioral change, saying our school district can't become a beloved community if white parents are only willing to send their kids to these three schools. But you get ready to listen to what black, brown, indigenous folks are actually asking white folks to do that would help, I say this not in any way, like disparagingly of us, like help us get out of the way and help us figure out how to start being useful. Then, after you got those two key pieces, then what we work on is how to have conversations with one another that give each other the space around that specific issue we're trying to do, 
you know, being part of that reparations campaign or sending our kid to a different school, etc. They give the space with other white people to admit why that's scary for us to do. Why, if left to our own devices, we wouldn't do it. But also helps connect with each other on why we might be called to do it. What is in us that is more inspired, that has a longing to be a part of something different, and then to take those two pieces and how to sustain a community that holds them together such that you keep moving forward. So who is showing up? What are the kinds of people that are uh, arriving at your proverbial doorstep? I, I don't know how folks have found me, but it's such a variety of folks who found me. It's deeply intergenerational. I've got folks who are just out of college, and I've got folks who are thinking about the last stages of their impact, who are in their 70s, who are in their 80s. I've got folks coast to coast in small rural red communities in you know the, the Brooklyns and the Oaklands of the world, right? And I've got folks who are uh, connected to a lot of power and wealth themselves and folks who feel, in particular from a class perspective, really, really powerless, right? I've got CEOs and founders of tech companies and I've got folks who work in Amazon warehouses. And I've got folks who wait tables in communities where they can't afford to live anymore. I get to imagine with people saying, listen, I was part of this particular era of startup founders, and I want us thinking differently about our impact and about how we're playing in the world and how we're not just trying to be masters of the universe. And I get to get off a call with that person and then talk to somebody saying, okay, the servers I'm trying to organize in Driggs, Idaho, to work on housing prices in our area. What does that look like and how do we do that? And I get to talk to a 70-year-old about her synagogue in rural Vermont. I didn't know there were synagogues in rural Vermont, but they are and they're doing dope work. And I, I, that's my life is I don't get to just be connected and feel less alone because the individuals do my class. But then I'm realizing there's a hunger for this, not just in the individuals who come to me, but in their networks. And that just gives me so much hope because I think probably a lot of folks listening to this are, you know, they may think, yeah, they probably think this is a, a whole bunch of wild and naive ideas because our experience of scarcity with other white people is that there is a limited number of white people who care, who want to do anything differently. And we've got a lot of preconceived notions about who doesn't. That, oh yeah, you might be able to have this conversation in Brooklyn, but you're not going to be able to have this conversation in the suburbs. You might be able to have a conversation uh, with middle-class folks, but you're not going to be able to have it with folks who didn't go to college. Um, and I've just found this is bonk. We are all hurting right now. We are all feeling isolated. And when you give people the chance to be a part of building that, it's, 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 it's really special. Well, the fact that you use the words dope and bunk in one response tells me everything I need to know about your ability to bridge <laughs> anti-racist action between different communities. <laughs> I love that. We ask all of our Solvers guests if there is one piece of writing um, prayer, a poem, just a song, anything that has really shaped their journey as a solver. Do you have something like that to share with us? Yeah, I, I said earlier, I grew up a fair number of places, but, uh, but Holmes, Montana. And home in particular is this network of Methodist churches in Montana that taught me my social conscious, that taught me what community is, that, as we talked about earlier, were the hubs 
and the reasons why my parents often filled the living room with other folks. The one you know, piece of wisdom that I'll never forget is my, I remember nothing else from my high school confirmation class. And I don't even remember the context in which my pastor said this, but my pastor, Steve Garnes Holmes at First United Methodist Church, Missoula, Montana, saying, you know, there's actually only two religions in the world. There's the religion of being right, and there's the religion of being in love. And the only rule is you're not allowed to be a member of both at the same time. And I think in a lot of different ways, white folks have spent their time addicted to the religion of being right, both in terms of our relationship to being on top of societal hierarchies, but also for those of us who think of ourselves as socially conscious white people as attempting to make our politics about separating ourselves from other folks and just being more strident and being able to be perfect with our pronoun usage and our land acknowledgement and our, our, our perfect, perfectly manicured bookshelves. And I'm coming to discover more and more that if I have anything to offer all the communities I've been welcomed into, it's not any of the books I've read, it is not any of the pristineness of my ideology. It is how deeply I can love folks hard enough that I can believe in both what already makes them great, but also believe that they're possible of being better than the pain that in particular other white folks are causing right now. And so yeah, that, 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 that quote's always gonna be with me. Well, now it will always be with me and any of our listeners. In our short uh, time of knowing each other, I think that's really the thing that's most struck me is that you walk through the world just absolutely refusing to give up on anyone. And, you know, as a white person, as a progressive white person in Oakland, as a progressive white person in Oakland writing about these kinds of things, I just feel how seductive it is to to give up on people, to separate myself from others, to make fun of other white people, like that all of that bubbles up for me. And I just have learned so much from watching how you walk in the world with all your joy and humor and, and all the rest of it, but also just this completely indestructible love for other people, including who knew white people, which I just think it's like the hardest for other white people to actually love each other and, and not give up on each other. So thank you for what you've already taught me. Um, and thank you for that, this beautiful conversation and that beautiful, uh, reminder about being, being in love or being right. And, and today I will attempt to choose being in love. Thanks to you. Thanks, Garrett. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Courtney. Hey, I know, I know you're feeling cynical about this one. What do you think? Honestly, what do you think? So I'm actually gonna flip this uh, back onto you because I think I I heard a lot of things, but mostly I heard a conversation of two people grappling with identity. So I would love to hear mm. what you thought, and then I'm happy to give my thoughts once you've gone. I think my growing edge as a white person trying to take anti-racist action in the world as a white mom trying to parent two white daughters is 
how do I, you know, lean into my own action, experiment with my own resources and power, Mm -hmm. and do so in a way that provides social proof to other white people around me that like, no, in fact, you we can do these things, we can, you know, redistribute excess wealth that we receive by virtue of our privilege, we can send our kid and in which case I do my first grader to a black majority title one school and she's fine and actually like it helps make the school better for everybody because I bring all my social capital and my resources and whatever so I can do that stuff I'm getting better and better at doing that stuff but I'm still on this growing edge of how do I write and show up in my social circles around that stuff without being a righteous asshole Mm -hmm. and I think that's like the progressive white lady trap is you're doing these things And then you want, like, it's just so seductive to separate yourself and sort of be like, no, I'm the one who's sending my kid to Mm -hmm. this school. So it's like, I'm not racist. Or, like, I'm the one who's taking these actions. Um, Like, what's wrong with you that you can't be more brave? There's just sort of like a, a real seduction around, like, the righteousness and the separation. And Garrett, at every turn, refuses that. Yeah. Like, he just, he's hilarious and he, he knows how to be joyful and he knows how to, take the piss out of people, but you would not hear him distancing himself from other white people in a way that I find just very compelling and I'm trying to learn from. That's my super vulnerable answer. (laughs) Yeah. Got it. I mean, well, thank you. And I think that in the conversation, that is what I heard was like two people who were were thinking about what does it mean to show up the way we do with our histories in this moment in time and trying to do better. I think for me, what was tough was to think about like, how do I locate myself in this conversation? I don't know what it's like to show up as the default and therefore then only then have to deal with your identity and start to, to grapple because no one questions whiteness or it's, it's always seen as the norm and baseline. And so what what I did think about a lot was uh, the conversation that you had with Esther Arma and the juxtaposition as they attack this problem. White supremacy almost feels like it's it's the air we breathe. It's in the water. It's absolutely everywhere. It It underpins so many of these like systems that we're trying to solve for. And so it needs multiple solutions, absolutely. But similarly, where I had a question that I would have loved to ask with Esther, the question I would have had for Garrett was the idea of of white people coming alongside uh, communities of black people and indigenous people is great. But if there's no trust, and there is no trust, what are the things that white communities can do to start to demonstrate that. One of the things that I do want to underline that this isn't just like a US-centric problem. So many of these things underpin so much of our geopolitics today. But now that white communities want to come alongside those communities of color, what happens when you have to excavate so much mistrust? My second thought was like, how do I hear what Garrett is trying to do from a place of compassion without just immediately shutting down and being like, why would white people denounce white supremacy when they benefit so much from it? Why? Why would you do it when materially what it would mean would be to dismantle every system and structure 
that you know to be true and comfortable, to no longer be the default, to no longer walk into spaces and feel like completely comfortable. Like, why would you do that? That was my second thought. So <laughs> those... Um, Such a small <laughs> question. <laughs> just, just little things, little things. Little and and I think that well. it's it's the nature of solvers to look into that complexity and still march on with the solution because it's not the full solution, but it's part of how... Garrett is contributing to how different, especially white people, hear each other talk about white supremacy. So I hear it. I appreciate it. I I still am a little bit skeptical about it. As you should be, man. As you, I, I mean, I have so many things I want to say. That was like that was just epic. I'm totally convinced we have to find a way to make anti-racist work joyful for white people just because of the second thing you said like no one is going to show up to dismantle white supremacy white folks are not going to show up to dismantle white supremacy unless there's like love and joy and all the stuff that we know makes movements actually work and so far i don't think white people have figured out how to do that and you know the reason that that we have an incentive to do this is white people for me it's like profoundly spiritual and it's like a leap of faith to believe this but like I think walking into all those rooms as the default as this you know quote-unquote comfortable one as you were sort of like phrasing it like I think it leaves a true wound at the center like a spiritual wound at the center of white people I think it's like it shows up in these totally horror you know violence and alcoholism and all the unspoken shit within generations of our families. And like, it's just, it's there. I have felt it since I was a little kid and I've, you know, it, it doesn't feel good to get more than you, you should. It, it actually feels terrible at the center of who you are in this like unconscious way. So that's pretty like new agey. I don't know if that sits with you, but I, I really do feel that it's, it's like a spiritual privilege to dismantle white supremacy that like we will be healed at this level that we can't even conceive of because of how steeped we are in it. Yeah, so I don't think it's new age at all. I think that there's joy in community. There's so much excavating to be done, um, but I, I hope that at the end of it, like no matter what side of um, of this identity that we each sit on, that there's liberation for all of us. I think maybe that's what Garrett presents is that there's, there's a way through and out and on the other side of that is is, is true liberation. It's not just another anti-racist workshop. It's not just another white fragility book. It is, you know, a true deeply felt liberation that comes with the gifts of community. I am also thinking as we're talking, like, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate your trust in you giving me your honest opinion about these things. Um, Because I think, you know, trust has been something that's woven through this podcast. And, Mm. um, you know, we we didn't get to know each other much before we did this together. And I think the fact that, you know, you've shown up and and gifted me with your true take on these things has been a leap of faith. So thank you for your trust. And Courtney, thank you so much for your vulnerability, for always being willing to jump feet first in both feet into um, these conversations and and to call yourself out too. I mean, I kind of, I have days when I'm like, can I just be one of those other kinds of people who just 
doesn't, doesn't do that diving feet first thing all the time. I'm a little sick of myself sometimes, but here I am. Do you ever get sick of yourself? Do you know what I mean? I don't. <laughs> You're like, I love being good. I just, uh, yeah, I'm really happy. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh my God, I want some of that. This podcast is brought to you by the Skolt Foundation, powering social innovators to transform our world. Rethinking Possible is produced in partnership with Aspen Ideas by Golda Arthur, with help from Jessica Flutie, Ava Hartman, Ryan Jacobs, Trisha Johnson, Daniel Marcus, Marcy Krivenin, and Zach Slobig. Our theme music is by Wonderly. You can get in touch with the show by tweeting us at Skoll Foundation or get in touch with me, Courtney, at Court Rights. Thanks for listening. Hey listeners, quick thing. If you're new to the show, welcome. We hope you're enjoying listening to these conversations as much as we enjoyed having them. And if you're already a subscriber, dare I say a fan, then you'll notice that we've had a bit of a rebrand by changing the show's name to Rethinking Possible. Hey, different name, but same conversations with some of the world's most extraordinary people trying to solve some of our toughest, most complex problems. We still love complexity. We should have just called the show Complexity. There's probably a trademark on that. You think? I do. It's cool. I kind of like rethinking possible. I do too. It does what it says on the can. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.